Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're going to continue our series in John 1. Uh, We're going to focus this morning on verses 9 through 13. And I've uh, been fighting a cold the latter part of this week, so I hope my voice is not too much of a distraction to you. Uh, But I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 1 this morning, and then uh, I'll read through to verse 13, and as I said, we'll focus on verses 9 through 13, okay? So, I encourage you to take your copy of Scripture and turn there, and please follow along. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the coming of your Son, Jesus, and we thank you and praise you that you have preserved for us a record of that account and the implications and the meaning and the significance of that event in your Word. And so, Lord, we thank you for this precious Word. And we pray, Lord, now that as we turn to your Word, that you would reveal to us more clearly the person of your Son, Jesus. And we pray that we would, as we have just sung, that we would worship Him, that we would worship Him with all our hearts, that we would give ourselves to Him completely and totally for your glory. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So far in John chapter 1, John has presented us with a cosmically spectacular vision of Jesus. In particular, we think about verses 1 through 5, right? Which I just read for us. And then, following that spectacular, cosmically spectacular vision of Jesus, John introduces us to the forerunner of Jesus, John the witness. In our text this morning, John focuses on how the world has responded to Jesus. So, here's this spectacular, cosmic vision of who Jesus is. John, the witness, is declaring who he is. And now, John is going to take up this matter. How, how has the world responded to him? How is the world responding to him? And simply stated, I believe that John's central message in this text can be summarized in this way. Most rejected the light, but some received the light and become the true children of God. Most rejected the light, but some received the light and become the true children of God. 
Now, with that in mind, our passage, we're going to break it up into five parts and walk through it looking at each one of these. First of all, we'll consider the coming of the light. Secondly, we'll consider the true light. Third, the rejection of the light. Fourth, receiving the light. And fifth, the children of God. So I'll repeat each of those as we go through if you're taking notes and didn't get them all, okay? So first of all, the coming of the light. This is verses 9 and 10. Look there in the passage, and John writes these words. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So already in in chapter 1 and previously when we were looking at verses 1 through 5, we see that John referred to Jesus as the light. The first time he does that is in verse 4. He was the light of men, John says there. And we remember, if you were here for for that sermon, if not, I'll I'll inform you here, Uh, but this idea of light represents knowledge or understanding, in particular knowledge or understanding of God, right? And so in verse 4, when John introduces this idea that Jesus is the light, in particular, he has creation in mind. We know that because if you go back to verse 4 and read it in the context of verse 3, it's apparent that John is thinking primarily about creation. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what John is saying there, initially as he's speaking about this idea of Jesus being the light, is that Jesus gave rise to all physical life, and therefore is the light of men in that through creation, God is revealed to us. So Jesus is the creator. He gives life. He creates all things. And through that creation and through that life, God is revealed to us. True knowledge of God is revealed to us. The psalmist says it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God. Jesus, the source of all life, created the world. And through creation, we see the glory and handiwork of God. But now, as Jesus is spoken of as the light in verses 9 and 10, John has a different emphasis. John continues this theme of light, but specifically here in verses 9 and 10, he is highlighting the miracle of Christmas, namely the incarnation. So in verse 9, he says, the true light, and here it is, was coming into the world, right? He was in the world, there it is again, and the world was made through him. So now the light that has created the world is in fact entering into the world. This is the incarnation. The creator is entering his creation. And Jesus here is referred to as the light in the sense that through his incarnation and through his life, he perfectly reveals the Father to us. And so he reveals true knowledge of God to us in his incarnation, in that he is Emmanuel, God with us, a perfect representation of God. And so Jesus is the light of men in his incarnation and in creation. Now secondly, John points out here that not only is the light coming into the world, so that's the coming of the light, the first point, but the second point is that he is the true light. Okay, the true light. Look there in verse 9. He writes, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, this word true here can be used in the sense of true versus false. Okay, so true versus false. But most commentators seem to agree that the sense of the word here 
is real or genuine, which is a little bit different, right? So, so in the sense in which this word is being used here, true, is, it, is in the sense of real or genuine. So we could, we could read the text this way. The real or genuine light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In other words, there are others who claim to be the light, but He is the true light. He is the genuine light. He is the real deal, you might say. In our own day, there is a crisis in what is known as epistemology. You may not have heard that word before, but epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. And so there's a crisis in epistemology, and this is the way you hear it expressed. People are asking the question, and people are wrestling with the question, how can we obtain true knowledge? How can we know what is true and what is right, what is good and what is evil? How can we know God, or can we even obtain true knowledge about God? And folks make the claim that there are um, different sources of light in the ultimate sense, Right? And, and many of these things that people claim are the source of light in the ultimate sense are good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. We saw actually a number of these things as we were working through verses 1 through 5. Let me give you a few examples. The, the Greeks claimed that it was the logos that was so central and so important to understanding the universe. So when John opens this chapter and saying, in the beginning was the word, that word actually is logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Logos was a key concept in Greek philosophy, and the idea the Greeks had was that if you could understand the logos, this was the key principle to understanding all reality, then you could make sense of everything. But John opens his gospel here by saying that Jesus is the Logos, that he is, in fact, the key unifying principle that makes sense of all reality. Others in our day claim that science is the key to understanding the universe. And we are so thankful for science and celebrate science. But as important and as beneficial as it is to understand how creation works and how creation functions, John, here in our text, he lifts our eyes even above creation, right? To the Creator, as we read in our text here, to the one through whom all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so in this sense, Jesus is truly the Father of all science. Some say that philosophy is the key to understanding the universe. John reminds us here, though, in our text, that the heart of the universe is not just an idea or an abstraction, but at the heart of the universe is a person. And because ultimate reality is personal, we talked about the idea that therefore we can have a grounding for such things as love and relationships and justice and beauty, because a person is at the center of the universe. In all these ways and more, Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the source of true knowledge and true understanding regarding creation and God and salvation and makes sense of everything. I was thinking about this in light of the shooting that took place this last week in Connecticut, and I appreciate Ray leading us in prayer earlier in the service for those who are grieving. And our hearts are broken for the families who lost children and for that community. You know, in the midst of this, I saw on an article on CNN uh, just actually this morning uh, 
people are asking the question, where, where was God when this took place? How do we make sense of all this? Where, where are their answers? Where can we go for answers? And listen, let me say that as Christians, no doubt, there are things that we don't fully understand. There are mysteries in this world, especially as we think about an event like that. But at the same time, I would contend that there is no other worldview and there is no other philosophy that offers real answers to life's toughest questions and accounts for our deepest experiences like Jesus can. I mean, there's so much that we could say in light of the shooting that took place in Connecticut, and we don't have a lot of time to spend on that this morning. But just consider this, that of all the major world religions, there is only one in which God has not simply bemoaned human suffering, has not simply to promise to alleviate human suffering, but has in fact entered into our suffering. That is remarkable. You know, everyone wrestles with, and all world religions and philosophies wrestle with this idea of the problem of evil and human suffering. And there are, in fact, mysteries involved. But I believe John Stott, who is a Christian theologian, states well how Christianity offers a unique and compelling answer. Listen to his words. He writes, quote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of this world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. This is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. End of quote. My friends, in such an event, in light of such an event, it is a remarkable thing that we can say that the God of the Bible knows what it means to lose a son. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus offers real answers. Jesus is the true knowledge that makes sense of the reality that we experience in this world. He is the true light. A third thing we see in our text is the rejection of the light. So we see the coming of the light, we see the true light, and then third, we see the rejection of the light. Look there in verses 10 and 11. We read these words. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So this is significant, right? The the light enters into the world. The Creator enters into His creation. Jesus, the light, is the incarnation of God. He is the perfect representation of God living among us. And how is He received? Verse 10, 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And this as well as is apparent in the Christmas narrative, right? You know, when I uh, read at night to our boys, uh, read from the Bible, there's a, a big picture book story, or a big picture Bible. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. But it, it has these great pictures, and, uh, and, and it's a children's Bible. And I read this to them. When we come to the narrative of Jesus' birth, um, Joseph and Mary are making their way to Bethlehem. And the big picture Bible asks, was Jesus born in a palace? And there's a great big picture of a palace there, you know. And no, they, you know, he wasn't born in a palace. And was Jesus born in a hotel? And then they have a picture of an inn or a hotel, what it would look like in the first century. And no, you know, he wasn't born there. And, and where was Jesus born? That's the question, right? And then there's a picture of a stable. And I think that there's kind of like a, a cow's head and a donkey's head like peering out of the stable, you know. And there it is. That's where Jesus was born, right? The word of God made flesh, born in a barn. Born in a barn. The, the, the rich and the powerful, the wealthy had no time for him. The, the, the innkeepers and, and the business owners in Bethlehem, they had no time for him, had no place for him. He was born in a stable, in a barn. And then there's Herod and the wise men, and they come from the east. The wise men come from the east, and they are seeking the promised child. And so they go to Herod. Herod gets word about this, right? And, and is Herod excited? A king's been born. No, right? He doesn't want another king. He feels threatened by this. And so he tells the wise men, hey, listen, you go and find this king, and when you find him, you let me know so I can worship him too. Now, these are wise men. They're not foolish men, right? And so they understand that Herod has sinister motives. And so they go and they find Jesus, and they offer him gifts, and they worship this new king, and then they take a different route home to avoid Herod. And what is Herod's response? He issues the death of all male children in Bethlehem who were two years of age or younger. He wants Jesus dead. And Jesus and his parents are forced to escape to Egypt. I was reading an article this last week by Russell Moore, and I think he states this very well. He says, quote, Jesus was not born into a gauzy, sentimental winter wonderland of sweetly singing angels and cute reindeer nuzzling one another at the side of his manger. He was born into a war zone. He was born into a war zone. Here is God coming in flesh into his creation, and, and the kings and the rulers of this age are set and determined to kill him. This is the reception that the world gives to the light. At best, we have no room for you. And at worst, you must be exterminated because you threaten our ambitions. John states it well in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we think about this 2,000 years ago, you know, Jesus is, he comes and he's rejected by the world. But John is, is eager to impress upon us the pervasiveness of this rejection. 
the pervasiveness of this rejection, that this in fact marks all humanity. You see, someone might respond by saying, okay, I get it, so, so many people rejected Jesus. You know, Herod rejected him, that's understandable. He was a king, he didn't want there to be another king. But, but certainly there were others who, who received him. What about his own people? They must have received him. Notice what John does in the text. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then verse 11, he presses it deeper. He came even to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John picks up an Old Testament theme that is repeated again and again. Israel had repeatedly God's people, Israel, had repeatedly rejected God's law and His promises and His prophets. And in their response to Jesus, their indifference and their rebellion continued and in fact reached its peak. One of the greatest tragedies of the gospel narratives is that Jesus' own people reject Him. And listen, John makes this point here not so that we would be particularly hard on the Jews, right? Not so we would be particularly hard on the Israelites, but he makes this point that he is rejected by his own people in order to press home the larger point that all men and women in their natural state are drawn to the darkness and actively resist and run from the light. If even his own people rejected him, what does that say about the larger world? The fourth point we see in our text here this morning is receiving the light. And this is found in verse uh, 12. So look there in the text and we read these words. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now at this point, if we only focused on verses 9 through 11, we might be left hopeless. Right? So here's the light. He's come into the world but he is widely rejected by the world. However, in verse 12, John reminds us that there is still a believing remnant. And this verse, verse 12, fits squarely into the larger purpose of the book of John. So John tells us very clearly the purpose for why he's writing this book. It's actually found at the end of of his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 21, he writes... These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So that's the purpose of the book. John is writing to incite, to compel us to belief, belief in Jesus. And here, right here in chapter 1, John makes it clear that the purpose for which he is writing is not simply to offer us an accurate theological or philosophical treatise on the person of Jesus. John is very concerned that we would have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. But that is not merely his purpose. His purpose, in fact, is to lead us to a personal encounter with Jesus. To not only accurately know him for who he is, but that we would personally encounter him and thereby be enveloped into the family of God. Now consider what this text says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. One thing we should note here right away from that verse is that what John says here means that not everyone is a child of God. Do you see that? 
It's those who believe in Him. It's those who receive Him who become children of God. Therefore, not everyone is a child of God. Some talk about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. This is the idea that God is everyone's father and all people are brothers and sisters. And there is some truth in that. In the sense that God is our creator. He created all of us, men and women. And we are all created in the image of God. And so there's a natural, even familial relationship that we share with all humanity. But there is a very important distinction to be made. And the Bible makes this distinction. There are those that we might say are children of God by creation, which means that we are all created by God and created in His image. And there are those who are children of God by redemption. That is through receiving and believing in Jesus. And listen, the difference is stark. In fact, the Bible teaches us that this is the difference between heaven and hell. This is the difference between life and death. The Bible teaches us that the children of God by creation have rebelled against their Creator and unless redeemed will face Him as judge. But it's the children of God by redemption who are declared forgiven and acquitted through the sacrificial death of Jesus in which He paid the penalty for our rebellion by dying in our place. And so when John here speaks of the children of God, he's speaking of those who are the children of God by redemption, not just by creation, right? And so that begs the question, well, and this is the question for you to ask, and it's a question for me to ask, am I a child of God? And how do I know I have become a child of God, or how could I become a child of God? And there are two important words to consider in answering that question. Look there in verse 12 and you see them. The two words are receive and believe. Okay? So ask yourself that question, am I a child of God? And here's the two key words that John presents us with. Receive and believe. To all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? I believe John Piper makes a great point here when he talks about the idea that to receive Jesus, this is what he says the idea of receiving Jesus means, it means to welcome Him into your life as He truly is. To welcome Him into your life as He truly is. In other words, if He offers Himself to you as provider, then you trust Him as provider. If He offers Himself to you as Savior, then you cling to Him as Savior. If He offers Himself to you as Lord, then you submit to Him and you follow Him as Lord. If He offers Himself to you as light, then you seek Him and you trust in His Word as truth. In all that Jesus offers Himself to you to be, you receive Him as He truly is. And then the other word is believe. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What it means to believe in Jesus is to trust Him to rest in Him. In particular, John and the other apostles and biblical writers are concerned that we would trust in Jesus' atoning work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. This means that we stop trying to justify ourselves. We stop trying to prove 
that we are worthy to be a child of God. And we acknowledge that instead, because of our rebellion against God, we are anything but worthy to be His child. And rather, we trust that God makes us worthy through Christ by His death, by suffering for our penalty, and by suffering for our sin and clothing us with His perfect righteousness. And that's what it means to receive, to receive Jesus and all that He offers Himself to us to be, and to believe, to rest, to trust in Him and His redemptive work on the cross. And notice what the text says. Notice the promise of this verse. If you receive Jesus and you believe in Him, then by the authority of Jesus, you are a child of God. That's the promise of this text. And my friends, understand, this is good news. This is so radically different than anything any other world religion or philosophy offers. Every other world religion or philosophy says that instead of receiving salvation as a gift, you must earn your salvation. You must work for it and earn it. Instead of believing in Him and He will save you, you must believe in yourself and maybe in the end you will make it. Do you see how radically different those two ideas and understandings of salvation are? This is the good news of the gospel, that all who believe in Him, who receive Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Now, fifth and finally, consider here in the text the true children of God. This is found in verses 12 and then specifically verse 13. The true children of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, it's interesting here because if we go back and we look at the larger passage of Scripture, starting back really in verse 4, where John introduces this idea that Jesus is the light, and coming down through now to verse 13, John follows this idea, this image of light, all the way through until he gets right down here to the end and changes the image on us, or, or the analogy, very quickly, right? So he's, he's been using this idea of light and following it all the way through from verse 4, and now he changes the imagery, and now the focus is on a family, right? He begins talking in terms of a family. Now, that seems odd. So light and John is bearing witness to the light and Jesus is the light and the light's coming into the world. And so all these ideas about light. And then he says, and if you believe him and you receive him, you'll become a child of God. So, so he changes the analogy for us. But there is a link to his previous discussion regarding light. Notice there in verse 11, he says, he, that is the light, came to his own and his own did not receive him. So who are his own? His own are his own people, right? Who are his own people? It's the Jews, it's the Israelites, right? And who were the Jews? Who were the Israelites? They were a people who took great pride in being what? The children of God. Okay? So the light comes into the world. His own, who profess to be the children of God, reject him. 
And so naturally the question arises, well, if his own reject him, if his own family reject him as the light, then who are the true children of God? And that's the question that John is addressing in verses 12 and 13. And notice how insistent John is here that being a child of God is not merely a matter of physical descent or even human will or determination. Look there, John states that the true children of God, verse 13, were born, and then there's three nots, right? Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. There's a really fascinating discussion that takes place between Jesus and the religious leaders in John chapter 8. And what's happening there is the religious leaders in Jesus are in a, in a conflict, and the religious leaders begin to claim, right, this is kind of their trump card, right? So, so Jesus and them are in this conflict, and so what do they fall back on? This is kind of, you know, this is their ultimate argument, right? Well, we are the children of God because Abraham is our father, right? So Jesus, how can you tell us we're wrong? Abraham is our father. Therefore, by lineage, by natural descent, we are necessarily the children of God. And Jesus responds to them in John chapter 8 by saying, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Okay? So he acknowledges it. You are the offspring of Abraham. That is very much so the case. But then he goes on to say, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. You got to love how bold Jesus is, right? You can understand why they were upset with him. Here, but, but listen to these two ideas. I mean, consider how, how radical this would have been for those who were listening to Jesus. Physical descendants of Abraham, yes, Jesus says, I recognize that. Spiritually, children of the devil. And what Jesus is saying there is the same thing that John is indicating here, that the true children of God are not children by blood. They are not children by natural or physical descent. But there's something else going on here regarding the true children of God. Now, one of the reasons this is important is because I fear that even today there are many who take hope in the fact that they are physical, natural descendants of a Christian heritage and therefore children of God, right? And maybe that's you here this morning. I mean, maybe it's not, maybe it's not that you're so concerned about Christianity or about following Jesus or that sort of thing, but, you know, as you think about all the options out there and how you can know God and how you can be right with God, you just... You just assume that if Christianity proves in the end to be true, you've kind of got that one covered. Your family went to church when you were growing up. Maybe you were baptized. You grew up in a quote-unquote Christian nation. Okay, well, in the end, if that proves out to be true, got that one covered. And John is so clear here, and Jesus is so clear Physical or natural heritage or descent is not the determining factor in being a child of God. And so what is? 
what is the origin of the true children of God. John has already told us that the mark of the true children of God is that they receive Jesus and they believe in Him, right? So that's, that's what they do. They receive Jesus, they believe in Him. But it's not, as John has said, because of physical lineage. It's not even ultimately because of their own self-determination. So where does this originate from? Why do they receive Jesus? Why do they believe in Him? And I believe what John is saying here in chapter 1 is that it is because they are born of God. Right? You see that in the text. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they are born of God. This reminds us of a discussion between Jesus and one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, listen, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And do you remember how Nicodemus responded to Jesus? He says, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Right? He's thinking only in terms of physical. Can I be born of my mother a second time? This is just weird. Nicodemus doesn't get it. But Jesus is speaking of a spiritual birth. And what Jesus is saying is that this can only be affected by God. Think about it. What did you have to do with your physical birth? Did you say, well, you know, I think I'd like to be born to John and Sally in Martinez, Georgia. They would be great parents. Or did you say, I think I would like to be born five feet, nine inches tall, athletic and smart. No, you didn't. There are many things in my life that I like to at least feel like I have control over. But there is one thing I am certain I have absolutely no control over, and that is when I was born and who I was born to and even the fact that I was born. This is why the Bible talks about Christian conversion in terms of a new birth, because it can only be affected by God. And yes, my friends, understand we must We must receive Jesus and we must believe in Him in order to be the children of God. But what John is saying here is that if you receive Jesus and if you believe in Jesus, it is because God has already worked in your heart, giving you a desire to receive Him and empowering you to believe in Him. And so my friends, listen, if you're here this morning and you feel that you are genuinely being drawn to the light. That Christ is attractive to you. That in Him you sense you could find salvation for your eternal soul and you are being drawn to Him to trust in Him, to follow Him, to receive Him. Then be assured, my friend, that this is the work of God in you. Do not reject Him. Receive Jesus. Believe in Him. And the promise of Scripture is that by the authority of Jesus, you will be declared a true child of God. May God grant it by His grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.